Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad to be here chatting with all of you again about bees. The season has gotten very busy very quickly and life just keeps on throwing those curveballs as life is prone to do. I wanted to talk to y'all today about the talk that I gave to my local bee club last month. The title was Specialty Splits or why would you ever want to do a walk away? The walk away that I'm talking about is the old fashioned kind where they just tell you to just split up the boxes and walk away. Not to be confused with the runaway split or the flyback split, which Andrew talked about and taught here on the podcast. The runaway split or the flyback split, as I'll tell you about later, that's the one I've actually been using mostly this season on hives that I couldn't find the queen because they were so large, on hives that needed splitting and I happened to run across the queen, then I used the retirement nuke or the nucleus method of splits, which I'll talk about. I was very honored to be invited to speak to the club. I don't do that terribly often because I have really bad stage fright and I think I just do much better talking to y'all here on the radio. But I introduced this talk by saying that The most important content that I'm going to share is not the how-to recipes, even though I am still working on a booklet for all of you with the actual recipes. But the truth is, it is the split dynamic that if you understand what is going on in a split, who is being left behind, who is being moved, and how that will affect the whole colony then you can do any kind of split you want. There are dozens and dozens of splits for various purposes. There are splits when you can't find the queen, there's splits when you got the queen, there's splits when you want to try to make honey and bees from the same colony, which they all the truism says that can't be done. It absolutely can be done, except you gotta be prepared to learn a cut down split. But what I do want to encourage is a deeper study and curiosity for us all about the dynamics of bee biology and behavior. And once you know those, every split becomes easier and more successful. That ongoing study and curiosity, and that study can be from books or mentors or bee friends or YouTube, reliable YouTube people. (laughs) That is the key to becoming a skilled long-term beekeeper. You need curiosity, you need perseverance and study, and to be open-minded to new ideas. In my opinion, that's the biggest killer. Well, the two biggest killers of <laughs> of a stellar beekeeping would be a lack of curiosity and an unwillingness to open one's mind to alternative methods and all, all the options that are actually available when you know them. And that makes for a happy long-term beekeeper. And that is truly what we need in this world. The truth is we don't need more new beekeepers. And let me clarify what that means. If you are brand new and you have the dedication to stick with it, then by all means, we need you. What we do need is more experienced backyard beekeepers because the unfortunate, more typical route, and I'm going to say this because I I don't want any of you guys to fall into it, is to have a deep passion and interest and love of bees, get a hive or two, and then it's hard and bees die. A lot of people just are like, oh, you know, I I don't have time to deal with this. So if you haven't gotten bees, I really want you to think about the time involved in caring for bees the way they need to be cared for. 
and I will give you an example. I had one out yard that was the furthest from my actual home, and winter after winter, they did more poorly than the bees here at home or any of the bees closer to me. But I was using the same methods, and I was really baffled by that because everything I could tell about that spot, it was a great spot. But I finally came to believe that it was just because I did not go check on them as often as I did everybody else, and definitely not as often as I do the ones here at home who have always had the best survival rate. So there is something to that. There is really something to keeping an eye on what they're doing and getting in there quick to check things out if they appear to be doing anything peculiar or if the population doesn't look right or if they look way too busy outside the hive, all those things. If if you get on top of stuff early, then you have all the tools in the toolbox to help or restrain a hive from swarming or fix a, an issue. But if you catch it too late, then you don't have any tools to use because a, a dwindling, dying colony can't do much of anything. So that's my soapbox for the day. And so... Beginners might ask the question, you know, why so much talk about splits? I just want to have my bees. I want to have them in the box. Maybe I want a little honey, but I don't want to be splitting all day long. Here's the thing. Bees want to make more bees. That is their biological drive. That is how they are created and programmed. Like most everything else in nature is to make more of itself. And so a wise beekeeper is going to work with that flow rather than against it, because making more bees is a constant and integral part of the bees' yearly cycle. And some things that are taught in bee schools are about, you know, making the bees not able to complete that yearly cycle of of reproduction. And in my opinion, that's not the right approach. Nature's always going to win. As they say, nature bats last. And so the, the more that we learn to go along with what the bees already want to do. It's kind of like steering a boat. <laughs> you know, you, you have to take wide corners on, uh, on, on a big boat. And that is, that it captures a lot of the feeling to me of, um, of beekeeping. If I sound different, I'm reading off notes. I know y'all are not used to that. <laughs> so I hope it will be better, but that's how, um, if I do sound different. So the bees wanting to make more bees, that is going to be true whether or not the beekeeper plans to collect any honey or wants more hives or doesn't want more hives. The bees are going to do what the bees want to do. We have options to use those impulses that the bees have so that it's a cooperative venture, you know, so that they get to fulfill their urge to reproduce and the beekeeper gets fresh, young, strong queens and healthy bees because just like with every other biological system, younger things tend to be healthier and more robust and more able to deal and adapt with their environment. So that's very true of the bees. And if we use that direction that they are always going to be trying to go, then it just makes beekeeping so much easier. For some people, splitting hives seems really invasive and artificial on the bees. And depending on your skill level, it can be invasive and even brutal. Because if your skills are bad, then you're not going to be good at splitting. And so 
the more things that we do to build our skills at beekeeping, that's going to help our bees the most because a clumsy beekeeper, a beekeeper who doesn't know what's going on with the hive and who decides to do intrusive manipulations, that's going to be hard on the bees. But a skillful beekeeper doing a skillful split is going to be actually less intrusive than a lot of things. For me, once I reframed it in my mind that my skill technique is a required thing in order for me to midwife or steward more bees into this world, once I saw that as as my skill contributing to more bees in the world, then it, it took on a whole different meaning for me. And one of the reasons I wanted to frame that in my mind in a positive direction was because I was very visibly seeing what a benefit it was to my apiary. When I did skillful splits, then I didn't lose swarms. And the thing about lost swarms is, yes, bottom line, it's the natural process. Nature works that way. If you've ever seen the the films or the real thing of, you know, a thousand little tiny baby sea turtles rushing down the ocean to get, rushing down the beach to get in the ocean, And then, you know, the nature show narrator comes on there and says, out of these thousand, maybe one will survive. That is how nature works. That's why a flower that produces a zillion seeds might have 10 offspring, because that's just typically nature's technique. To get more of a thing is to get super more of a thing, and some of them are going to make it. But if you read, do the research, and I'm speaking here of uh, Dr. Seeley at this moment, basically a, a swarm, a natural swarm has a, a less than 30% chance of survival. I'll repeat that again. So a natural swarm has a very low rate of survival. The The way nature looks at this is that's okay because every hive in every tree is going to create at least one, maybe more swarms a year. And there can only be so many colonies of bees per square mile. And in nature, it's of course much fewer than we beekeepers tend to to keep bees in an area. So it works in nature, but the only way it works is if we don't get involved at all. In other words, if we don't put the bees in the boxes, then nature's out there working in her own way to allow the species to go forward. You know, the species is working on its own behalf to allow the species to go forward. But if we are going to get involved as beekeepers, at meaning that if we are going to have bees in a box that nature did not create, then the best outcomes happen when we are at the top of our game in terms of our skills, which can only happen over many years. So beginners don't feel bad. You What's that saying? To make an omelet, you got to crack a lot of eggs. And that is true. This is what I've learned in, in gardening. I've become a really good gardener. But let me tell you, I did that by killing a lot of plants. And unfortunately, you're going to mess up. You're going to crush a queen. You're going to do things that basically kill a colony. There's just no getting around that. Unfortunately, that is part of the experience. Now, you can minimize that. The more time you spend with a good mentor, the more time you spend with a a good book or a good video that where the beekeeper is not wearing a spotless white jacket. I mean, to me, that's the key. If I, if they have on a spotless white jacket or, or clean white leather gloves, I'm like, um, you are not the level of experience that 
anybody needs to be watching in, in, in my, um, unpopular opinion. But I believe that's true really in my heart that the real beekeepers, you know, their bee jacket and their veils look like they've been drugged behind a tractor. And, and that's one of the ways that, that you can identify people who've really kept bees and actually have the mileage that it takes on them to be a good beekeeper. So back to the, the lost swarm. The thing about splits that is great and it, that is helpful to the apiary in, 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 in the most helpful thing I have ever learned in the apiary, the splits prevent lost swarms. And the thing about a lost swarm is basically you are releasing a gang of bees out into the world with the odds stacked bad against them. And in this world, we just don't, we don't need that. The majority of people live in areas where a swarm of bees in the attic or the side of a house or in a shed are not going to be welcome. They are going to be easy pickings for exterminators who don't believe in calling a, a beekeeper. And they're going to be easier pickings for all of their natural predators as well. So when we split, basically we are preventing lost swarms. And that will increase the survival of bees in your apiary period. And, and also, ironically, um, in your area. Because if you do a split and you come out with two healthy colonies from, or heck, if you do different splits, you can come out with five healthy colonies over time from, from one split. But if, if you do that and share those bees or have those bees, whichever way you want to do it, that is creating more bees to be out there doing the pollinating and the, and the honey making that we so appreciate. So I have found splits to be the key to having a sustainable apiary and in, and Part of it is in preventing lost swarms. Not only does the the swarm part that goes away have a very, they have the lowest chance of survival, but even the remnants of the colony that are left behind to make a new queen, because of just the process they have to go through and the risk that that queen has to has to take to you know to emerge from her cell alive, not killed in there by one of her sisters, and not killed when she gets out by one of her sisters, and then not eaten by a bird while they're out there on their mating flights, not stymied on their mating flights by bad weather or wind or running into a car, all those things. So just in in raising queens, typically what I've learned is if if you put out four mating nukes and three of them come back with mated queens, you're doing great. That's good. That's, I mean, occasionally you'll get four, but it's not every time. There's always going to be a certain amount that just don't come back or don't mate well, or there's something wrong with them. So again, if you are collaborating in the process with the bees, then the home colony, the old colony has a better chance of doing their job. And also you're there monitoring things. So if they have, have a loss and you can see like when, you know, there was supposed to be a queen here laying by now and there's not. So therefore I've got to take action and get them a queen of some kind so that they can continue to survive or combine them with another hive so that they can continue to survive. So splits done well are basically guided swarms. You're working with the natural swarm urge in every bee to collaborate with the bees on meeting their goals and your goals. And both those things increase a colony's chance of survival long-term 
in an apiary setting. And for those out there that are worried that if they do all these splits that they they won't be contributing to the, the feral population of bees out there in the wild, well, don't worry. <laughs> there will always be those that got away because there's just not, you know, you cannot beekeep for any length of time and not lose a swarm despite your best efforts with splitting. So don't worry. Nature's always going to get, uh, she's always going to, well, she's always going to win. So a skilled split is a way to get young queens either homemade or purchased. And the young queens will overwinter dramatically better than a second year queen and a third year queen, obviously. Part of that is because that queen has not gone through a full season of a honey cycle in a big hive. As you all know, natural hives out in the cavities of trees tend to be quite a bit smaller than the hives we keep them in. In nature, that creates a lot more swarms, and it seems to work best for the bees. But in an apiary setting, we tend to keep them larger. So it's worth thinking about that, um, for example, that's one reason why I really like the nucleus split method, which I call the retirement nuke plan, which is when you are looking at a hive and for some reason you come across your queen, maybe she's an unmarked queen, hard to find, and there she is, and you've got her on a frame in your hand. And so whenever I have that, I just stop and think, do I need to split this colony? You know, have they been split this season? Are they of a size that a split is would be viable? And it makes it very easy because you can just take that queen. She's now retired, even though she's still going to produce and help your apiary. But you you put her in a that frame with her on it in a nuke and then add some frames from the colony with clinging bees and some pollen and some stores because they won't have their flying bees. So we have to provide for them. And then you've got a little nuke that, you know, she's a mature queen. She's going to be cranking out the population, but put in a nuke, she can actually keep up with the laying that will please the workers. And so they're not going to supersede her. And this is really great if you have a queen with genetics that you want to continue, but she's getting elderly. Then that's what I do is I keep her in a nuke pruned back in terms of size by removing capped brood, for example, when I need to, you know, giving her more room to lay. But what she also does is she is laying frames of eggs that I can use to make more of her genetic line, either through grafting or just through frame-based queen rearing. The other thing about skillfully making split as a part of your apiary management is that it's a way for beekeepers that maybe only have a handful of hives to significantly increase the supply of locally locally raised colonies that can be sold or gifted to others. Uh, For example, a whole beekeeping chapter could work together to raise enough healthy local nukes for new or young beekeepers who complete the training sessions that the club offers. This can help your community get off of the non-local package and nuke treadmill because the thing about the package and nuke treadmill, and I'm just, I'm talking about people who make their living from selling packages and nukes, that that's their primary business, then what benefits them, which is a bee that just makes lots and lots and lots more bees rather than honey or survival length or anything like that, it creates a treadmill because it sets up all the beginners with bees that are very unlikely to survive even with a a decent beekeeper, much less a beginner, because bless our hearts at that time, we're doing the best we can and and our our skills are not uh, fully developed. So 
it's it's so unfair. I've, I found this it's cruel that mostly beginners have to start with packages or nukes that are not raised locally by a beekeeper who's actually keeping bees rather than just raising nukes and getting off that treadmill. In my community, we have gone a long way in getting off that treadmill and the members that are new to the club or members that have lost all their bees, they have an entire club community of people that are often very willing to share bees or sell them. And if you have that option, so many times it's going to be more successful in the long run than the packages and nukes that are produced commercially. So to wrap it up, skillful splits, in my opinion, are the key, the key to a sustainable apiary. And by sustainable, I mean an apiary that's able to maintain its own population of hives, not needing to catch or buy replacement bees. And the word there's needing, because you can always get more bees if you want. If you're a collector, you can get all kinds of queens and just have all kinds of bees if that's what you want to do. But you won't be backed into a corner and have to buy replacement bees. It, it's been the key for 13 years of having a sustainable apiary in a chemical-free setting in my own yard. It is not bulletproof, but it is the main way I have seen any apiary thrive over the long term. The only beekeepers I have seen start and stay with it more than five years are beekeepers who, who get into making splits because it, that skill is that key to having an apiary that survives. Here in North Carolina, at 3,000 feet anyway, I have just hit swarm season. They have that look in their eye. <laughs> so I have been going out and assessing and, and doing doing the splits, depending on what I find, guides me to which split would be best for this colony. In places warmer than here, you're already in split season. I mean, swarm season, which is also split season, you might be done with it. And then places further north, you still have time to to get your equipment and uh, get your skills honed up to do it. So the three foundations, in my opinion, of understanding bees and their biology enough to participate, to collaborate with them in a skillful way, these three foundations have to be there. The context understanding the players or the, the chess pieces in this thing. And that's the bee biology. That's the dynamics of a, of a colony. And then you have to know some split recipes. And that's, that's the easy part. Because once you know these other two parts, there's no problem. Because if you've got these three things underway, then it doesn't matter what kind of hive you open or what kind of situation, you will have an approach to deal with it. And also you will have the knowledge that lets you know when to make splits, when not to make splits, for example, you know, splits too early in the season or too late in the season, they don't have the same chance of survival of, of building up a colony as splits done in the right time of the season. So knowing all that really impacts your skills as a beekeeper. I listened to another podcast recently, which I, I do. I love beekeeping. Actually, I love a lot of podcasts, but especially beekeeping ones. And there was a new one aimed at new beekeepers that I thought, oh, this is great. But I mean, I was actually, I was like, oh, thank goodness, because it, it does get tiring as experienced beekeeper to keep saying the same old basics over and over and over when it's available in any basic beekeeping book in the world, if anybody would just take the time. But that's okay, 
because that is a part of learning. And, and many of us are willing to say it over and over and over because, you know, somebody had the patience to do that with us. That's a way that, that we, we pay it forward. But anyway, on this podcast, it was a question from a listener, something to the effect of, how many frames do I need to move to make my split? The host just jumped right in to answer in that, you know, this is how many frames you need to make a split. And I just, I just sat there and went, what? Because he didn't address or even put out there that all the things that needed to be addressed before you know how many frames need to go in a split. He didn't say where this caller was writing from. Was it Maine? Was it the southern tip of Florida? Yeah, that that's going to change the answer. He didn't address that the the caller would need to tell him how big is this colony? What's the developmental stage of this colony? How old is this queen? How does the population look? All of these things. You know, what equipment do you have as a new beekeeper making their first split? There was like 20 questions that, the, in my opinion, the host needed to, to know before you can give a good answer of how many frames do you need a split? Because the true answer is, well, it depends on the next, these next 10 questions I'm going to pepper you with about your colony and your situation and your whereabouts and your skill level and all that. So I will admit I got irritated and I turned off the podcast. <laughs> so, so it might be good on every other episode and maybe I just tuned into that and got frustrated and didn't listen. I'll go back later and try harder. But anyway, this is the takeaway. A skilled beekeeper would never make decisions about what to do with their colonies without considering the context. And those are those 20 questions you ask yourself before you can have an answer. The The context would be things like this, this the seasonal timing are are you at the beginning of your local season, the middle, the end? Are you in a flow? Are your bees expanding or contracting? The flow part's Im- important. Are, are you do, are you having nectar flow or do you have a dearth? Splits are much harder to make when there's a dearth. The bees are not happy with d- dearth and they don't do their best work on making a new queen because they're worried about the dearth. And then also the other imperative part of the context is the overall condition and circumstances of that colony. For example, has that colony been split recently? Did that colony swarm recently? The population, is it growing robustly? If that's the case, you're going to have a lot of resources and options to do your split. Is it a colony that has kind of already started to peter out? In that case, you're going to need to make different decisions in order to to have the best chance of being successful. So these are some of the questions that I mentally ask myself, and and here's the catch. At this stage in my beekeeping, I don't even realize that I'm asking these questions and answering them in my own head. And so it is true. If I was out there mentoring a person, I might just say, hey, this colony looks like it needs this kind of split. And I, and I wouldn't have made clear that I have thought, I already know the answers to the following questions before I ever say that. And those questions would be, are the bees in expansion mode or contraction mode? So that are they in that time of the season where that colony is actively growing or have they already peaked? Like after summer solstice, the population, there's a gazillion bees in there, but the population is now going to start getting less and less and less because the queen lays less after summer solstice typically. You know, I would want to know if that colony um, has a giant population or has a skimpy population. 
Is that colony healthy and robust, or are they struggling and declining? Is the population balanced between younger bees and and flying bees? So, for example, this is something that, that I learned the hard way many times early on with making splits in the late summer. You can have a colony that is absolutely overflowing with bees, but if you look in that colony, there's virtually no brood going on because they've hit late summer dearth. The queen's not laying. You've got a gazillion bees that don't have anything to do. But the truth is, it's not easy to make splits at that time, even with that population. Now, at that time, you're going to need that population if you do go forward with making a split, because anytime the bees are going to be under stress, then you're going to need a much larger population in both parts or the multiple parts of the split than when you're in the ideal, beautiful season for making splits, which is in where I live, tends to be late April all the way through May, typically, unless it's raining for a month, which occasionally it does. It hasn't done lately. It's actually been really dry. And then all the way up to summer solstice, generally speaking, making splits is easy. After summer solstice, it gets harder because the there's dearth, there's robbing pressure. My bee lines, and you pay attention to this in your yard, pay attention to when they start throwing out drones because some never seem to throw out their drone. You know, you know, you don't see all the poor guys standing on the doorstep until, until the frost is there. It's so sad every time, but you know, my bees, they don't mess around. They start actively throwing out drones in the summer dearth. And so that affects my chances of getting good, good queen mating. And so all those things are things that, that I take into consideration before making that split. Another consideration is their time for this colony to regroup from whatever kind of split I'm doing before the coming dearth or the coming winter. You know, are they going to have time to reach a viable size? That is always a consideration. And for beginners, a huge consideration just on any split is are there enough drones out there to make this likely a successful split? That's the mistake I see most often. Beginners wanting to split, you know, here where I am, you know, they want to split in March if we've had a warm spring. And sure, you can split in March, but the problem is they don't they don't have drones out there yet in any quantity here. Now, obviously that's very different in the warmer climates, but are there drones out there? And looking to see what I do is I watch my own yard. It's like, I don't care what everybody in Facebook is doing down the road for me or, or in the city closest to me or whatever. What I care about is what my bees are doing. And that is, am I seeing a lot of drones walking around in the hive and better yet coming and going out the door? And the quantity of that tells me whether the neighborhood <laughs> is set up, the drone congreg- congregation area, whether it is well populated with all the guys. And that's what it absolutely needs to be in order to have the best success and so on. So remember that when an experienced beekeeper is telling you instructions on splits, there are probably 10 to 12 questions they have already answered in their mind about this. And it really I know it's hard, and I mean, I know I'm one of the worst, but anyway, if you're with your mentor, you know, really ask them if if you say, hey, what does this hive need? And they say, well, they need to be split. Ask them, what are you seeing that makes you say that? And some people, I don't know why, will be very grumpy about answering that as as if you're questioning their um their wisdom or something. But the truth is, you can say, look, I, I want to know, I want to understand what you're seeing that tells you that so that I can see that same signal 
and realize, oh, I see a bunch of drones flying in and out the door. So therefore, my splits have a higher chance of being successful in the terms of better mating. So again, the seasonal and colony context, that is what those things are what dictate what good options are available to this particular colony at this particular time. I'll say that again. The seasonal and colony context determine what good options are available to this particular colony at this particular time. Another big factor that I see people get confused on is the kind of split you make and when you make it is going to be very, very impacted by the kind of queen you plan to get in that new colony. So, for example, there are many kind of queens that you can get. You could get a purchased mated queen. Now, probably if, if, if you're, if you don't even have drones and you're getting a purchased mated queen from somewhere else, it's probably from a warmer climate. That may or may not be an issue depending on who you order from because there are quite a few queen rearers who take their northern stock down to Florida in order to get early northern queens. Now, they're they're probably mating with Florida drones, and it just depends on how good the beekeeper is of how, how flooded, you know, flooded that area is with the northern genes, but that is something to think about. So you've got a purchased mated queen. Those are easier on one level because she's going to come out of the box and probably within a week be laying, which is very, very different from a colony who's going to make a homemade from scratch queen. When they're going to start with the tiniest larva, the queen has to go through the entire larval and pupal stage. She has to get out of that cell alive, and then she has to be able to go out on her mating flight and then come back alive, be welcomed by, (laughs) be able to stay alive when she comes back, meaning she flies into the right hive. And then start laying. And only when, actually only when she, when you can see the capped brood that she has produced, do you know you had a successful queen? Because there have been many times I see a queen, a new queen, the, all these cells are full of, of larvae and eggs. And I'm like, look at her go. And then when I look back and see the capped larvae, she's a drone layer. So something happened, you know, either the guys weren't out at the drone congregation area or she couldn't go fly at the right time. And now all she has is, is drones, the unfertilized eggs to work with and that not viable. So that's just a hint to, you know, don't relax on your mated queen return from a from scratch queen until you have seen the capped brood and make sure that she is mostly laying workers. You've got the purchased mated queen option. You've got the option of buying virgin queens, which is kind of a, it's a whole skill set on its own. It, it's definitely doable, but it is a very different introduction and process than either a caged mated queen or a from scratch queen. You could start with a queen cell which I really like, that to me has been a great way to start because you are skipping forward, gosh, several weeks, and that way you don't have to wait as long and they don't have to go as long without a laying queen. A capped swarm cell that you come across or or a almost capped swarm cell that you come across in a hive right there, if you've got a little nuke nearby or a queen castle that you can put that swarm cell and that frame and then give them population and stores, then boom, you can have another colony if if everything goes right. That's one of my favorite things. I do keep a queen castle out in the main yard 
so that if I'm going through a hive and I'm like, well, crap, here's a, here's a queen cell, then I start setting those aside to decide whether I want to make new queens. There are some hives that I don't want to make new queens from that hive, so I might do other things. But if it's a good queen and you find a capped swarm cell, you have a treasure in your hand. Remember that by the time the swarm cell is capped, in many instances, the queen has already flown. And so you don't want to knock all those down. Now, not every instance, thank goodness, because like a hive I opened the other day, first frame I pulled out, capped queen cell. And I was like, well, dang. And that's not what I said in the yard, because this was a hive that I really wanted to make more from. And I felt like I'd probably lost the queen in a swarm. I mean, I was glad that I still had a swarm cell. But when I spent some time looking around, because at point, that point, if you find a swarm cell, you need to look at every frame, every frame to see how many swarm cells you're dealing with. It turned out I found really just one. There were a lot of very still larval queen cells. And so I left the larval queen cells and the capped queen cell with the colony because I figured that if I got lucky, then that first queen to emerge you know, she's so ahead of all the rest that she would likely eliminate the threat of after swarms. But always that's that's rolling the dice. And I found Queen Mama walking around in there and she didn't even look that slim. <laughs> she apparently didn't get the memo that she was supposed to be slim and ready to fly by the time that cell was capped. And I was delighted because I could immediately put her in a retirement nuke. So now I can keep her, Lord willing, I can keep her and have more eggs from her to use to make more queens from her. So it is important to think about before you make a split, where is the new queen going to come from? How will she be made? How will she be acquired? And all that, because it really changes what you need to plan for. So the takeaway here is that whenever you are thinking of making a split, consider the context, consider the seasonal timing, the nectar flow or dearth, and the overall condition and current circumstances of that colony. And that part is really about, are they in expansion mode or contraction mode? How healthy are they? How robust? How populated? All those things. All right, so I'm going to end. I'm not anywhere near done, but I'm going to end here because I would like this to be in um, digestible pieces. I can run on a long time once I get into this. You all must be a very forgiving crowd to be listening to this podcast, all these episodes for all this time. And I will say thank you so very much to the patrons because hopefully what you noticed was not in this podcast was advertisements. And I don't think any of us enjoy advertisements. And it is the patrons supporting the podcast that allows me to not worry about getting sponsors and not worry about giving you all these sponsorship messages because the patrons keep this podcast on the air. And if you are interested, it is patreon.com slash fiveapple, F-I-V-E-A-P-P-L-E. All right, I'm going to sign off today. I'm wishing you all well. Congratulations on a new season. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, congratulations on your rest time. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm cheering you all on. Thanks and talk to you soon.